Today is going to be kind of a different sermon. Normally when you preach, preaching's intention to some degree is to pour out information, to uh, basically give you insight on what we just read, and hopefully you go home knowing a little bit more than when you came in. That's normally what people, that's why when people say, man, I really got fed today, what that means is I learned a lot. Today, it's not going to be that kind of a message. Today's going to be a devotional message. By devotional, it's going to be a message where I want you to engage with the thought so your relationship with God will grow. Hopefully, and what I've been praying for is that the Holy Spirit will provoke you and will, like a light shining in a cave, will show areas of your heart that, wow, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm as close to Christ as I thought I was. And so it's going to be a devotional message today. Genesis chapter 5 is a unique passage. Often, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon on it, and I'm going to call this a devotional message. To start off, I want to begin with a quote. And this quote is on a movie. My wife and I will watch this movie usually during Christmas. It's an old movie. Well, not that old. It's called While You're Sleeping. came out about 25 years ago. I mean, it's not that impressive of a movie. We just like to watch it. But there's a phrase in there where a father is talking to his son. I want you to listen closely to what he says because I think it's very accurate about the way we live. Here's what he says. He says, life is a pain. I'll tell you. You know, you work hard, try to provide for the family, and then for one minute, everything's good. Everyone's well, everyone's happy. In that one minute, you have peace. And in the movie, the son says, Pop, this isn't that minute. And there it goes, it's broken. That minute, it's gone. And so I'm thinking about that, there's a lot of truth to that. Just seems like maybe during this week I can get one minute, one minute where life's okay. Maybe this month, can I just have one minute where... I can breathe easy, and <sighs> everything's calm. It's kind of sad that most of us live like this. Most of us spend our days running and just trying to find peace, and it's hard to come by. So I want to ask you a question. I want you to think of this. What would you do? What would you do if I was able to give you one week off of the week? And by that, You don't have to go to work. Your job will be taken care of. And if, let's say, you're a salesman, you'll sell more than you ever did. You don't need to go to work. I'm going to get somebody to replace you for one week. That week, your house will be cleaned by a great cleaning service. So you don't have to worry about dusting, wiping smudges off mirrors. You don't have to worry about landscaping and getting the leaves out. You'll have a top company taking care of your house. And, to top it all off, for your week and your week alone, I will send your kids to camp all week long. So you don't have to worry about it. All right, so, you have a week. You have a week. What would you do with it? What would you do with that week? You don't have to go to work. You don't have to do anything about, around the house. Yes, I do. I have so many projects. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't, you don't have to call your kids. They're doing just fine. What would you do for that week? Some people would binge watch Netflix. 
That's what some people would do. Some would get on social media and check up on everybody's Facebook and Pinterest and, you know, Instagram accounts, what I'm going to do all week. Some people just go fish and hunt. Get the, but they'd still, you'd still, you still got to get things done because you'd feel guilty if you're not doing anything and you're, you'd, you'd say, I just need to be useful. What does it mean to be useful? And why are we always trying to be useful? What does that even mean? I just got to be useful. I'm curious. Here's what I'm curious about. Let's say you have that week. I give you that week. And I'm just asking the question. I'm not, I am not trying to inspire guilt. That's not my... How much of your time would be spent in prayer? How much of your time would be reading the Word of God or reading a book about God? How much of your time would be going out and just enjoying what He gave you without worrying? Or would you just be too bored? Would you be content with being bored with God for that week? Or I just got to be useful. Why does life always have to be about being useful? What does that mean? I mean, honestly, what does it mean to be useful? Well, I, I got to clean dishes. See, I'm being useful. How is that being, what does it mean? I don't think we ask these questions. What would you do with that week? Today is this kind of sermon where we're going to take a breath. Take a deep breath right now. We're just going to think a second. Think about our lives. The title of this passage is The Calm, chapter 5 of Genesis. And the reason I call it The Calm is because we just got out of the worst storm imaginable. Genesis 3 and the residual effects of 4 was catastrophic. And we're going to go right into Genesis 6, which is going to be literally the worst catastrophe this earth has ever seen in the Great Flood. But here we are caught in chapter 5. And it's the one chapter is going to account for 1,500 years. Chapter 5 is 1,500 years, and I call it the calm. Let's read it, and then we're going to meditate on it. Starting in verse 1, Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and he named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 850 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. 
When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Hmm. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So that's chapter 5. In a way, not much. We can say three things about it right from the start. Number one, it's a review of creation. You know, we just got done with talking about sin and the curse, and the writer is reminding us once again our purpose. What is our purpose? To be image bearers. We're made in the likeness of God. Man is, male and female, both image bearers, and that's what verse 1 and 2 is talking about. It's bringing us back to purpose. Don't forget, in the middle of all the craziness and all the curse, you're here to be an image bearer. That's your purpose. Don't forget. Second thing we can do is we can look at what's going on from verse 3 through the end of the chapter. In a way, I like to look at it like this. We're walking through the oldest cemetery known to man. It's full of tombstones and gravestones, probably uncut grass and giant willow trees that are bigger than ever with all of these names of the oldest men who ever lived. Outside the cemetery, it's called Seth's Cemetery because this is following the bloodline of Seth, not Cain. Remember, Cain was cursed. Seth was blessed. So this is the cemetery of Seth. What we could say about Seth's cemetery, death happens, get used to it. Not much else to tell. They lived a long time, and then they died. Every one of them died, except for one. We'll talk about him in a minute. And then the third thing I want to just help you do, and this is how we're going to walk through our devotional, it's going to be, we're going to walk through the grave, gravestones, and we're going to just stop at two. But before we do, let's just kind of take an overview, because there's three lessons we're going to learn from the overview and two gravestones. The first one is going to be an overview of the whole cemetery. 
if we look at these names and really notice what they mean, we're going to see that these names are always leading towards one name. History, the history of mankind is always leading towards one person, Christ. You can say it like this, history is his story. These names from Adam all the way down to Noah and all the names that are listed are all found in Luke chapter 4 in Mary's genealogy. Jesus had a mom and a dad. In Matthew, it's the father's genealogy. His father Joseph's genealogy. Father's the patriarchal system. In Mary's, it's the human genealogy. And it starts backwards and it goes from Mary's genealogy back to Adam. And it leads through all of these names we just read. So all of these names are connected to Christ. But I want to show you something interesting. Go to the next slide. This is, I want to talk about etymology for a second. This is kind of speculation, so don't take this as gospel truth. But it is fascinating, and some of you might know what I'm talking about. So here's the names. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. All of those names are in Jesus' genealogy. If you look at verse 29, you'll notice that Noah was given a name based on what's going to happen in his life. So his dad, Lamech, named Noah Noah because he said, you are going to bring relief, your birth is going to bring relief and comfort from the turmoil that's been happening. And what we're going to find out is he's the one that builds the ark to bring them out of the judgment of God. Throughout the Old Testament, often you'll read that a person is named something because of who they are or what they're going to become. That's called etymology. What is the root name of the Hebrew word? So if Noah's relief and comfort, what are the other guy's names? If we're just going to, let's just try it one. Adam's name means man. That's, he's named out of dust, man. Adam means man. Seth's name means appointed or one chosen. That's what it means, that Remember, Eve said God has appointed this man to basically make up for the death of Abel. We said that last week. Enosh means mortal, weak. Kenan, which is also Canaan, same name, it means sorrow, bringing sadness, bringing distress. Mahalel is, you'll see, like it sounds a lot like hallelujah kind of talking about the blessed God. Jared, that name means, shall come down. Enoch means teacher, or actually preacher. Preaching one, teaching one. Methuselah, his name we're going to find out even more further, but his name means, his death shall bring, really a day of judgment, and Lamech, out of judgment is despair. You've probably heard of lamentation, same root, the idea of to despair. But if you put it together, it's kind of interesting. Man appointed mortal comes sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching and his death shall bring to despairing relief and comfort. I find that fascinating because it's pointing to a person who brought, who was sent by God down to this earth to bring the despairing relief and comfort. Pretty interesting. You can look that up on your own. Speculation, so don't take it necessarily as gospel truth. 
So let's continue on. Let's go see some more gravestones. Just thought you'd find that interesting. That's the idea of devotional. Take a look around you. When you study Scripture, look around. It's God, God's design is through the whole thing. Actually, Luke 24, 44 says that this book, everything in this book, the law, the prophets, the songs are about me. Luke 24, 44. Let's, uh, let's take a look. There's a giant gravestone in the back. It's huge, by the way. It's giant, and it's got a big name, Methuselah. Who, what kind of name is that? Methuselah, and what is his name mean? It's the biggest gravestone, and as we said, his name can mean a number of things. It can mean a thrown spear that hits its target. It could mean that. It could also mean his death shall bring judgment. What's interesting in Greek, the Greek phrase seems to have the same idea of his death shall bring judgment. What does that mean? Well, a lot of scholars... Tradition has this idea that when Methuselah dies, so his death, will come God's judgment. What does that mean? Well, it just so happens the same year Methuselah died is the same year the flood began. So the same year Methuselah died is the same year judgment came upon the whole earth. You can read it. I've even read some scholars that are kind of skeptical of it, but they do say historically the same year he died is the same year the rain started falling. Okay, so his death shall bring God's judgment. What's interesting is he is the oldest man who ever lived. 969 years. I was thinking about it. If Methuselah, let's say Methuselah is 500 years old and lived with us, that'd be half of his life. He would have met, he would have met George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. He would know a lot of people. He lived a long time, almost a thousand years. Some writers say before the flood happened, man was designed to live forever, actually, until sin came in. But why does this matter? So 969 years, that's the longest that a man has ever lived. If you put these two things together, if God has promised judgment when this man dies, he chose the oldest man to live. Therefore, God's patient. God chose the oldest man for his judgment to wait or to linger or to last. You could say it like this. God is patient, slow to anger, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Is this a... Uh, Am I just kind of speculating on this? I'm not. I want you to consider a verse. I want you to go to Romans 2.4. I want you to think of this. Remember, this is a devotional study, but I want you to ponder this a second. Stop on it. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Because I am postulating that this... Length of years of Methuselah is God's way of saying, I'm going to let him live a long time so you will have that much time to turn and repent. But when he dies, it's over. I'm telling you, it's over. Listen to what Romans 2.4 says. Do you presume 
Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Forbearance is holding back wrath. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that is leading you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and God's righteous judgment is revealed. So you can, you can look at it like this. This is saying God has wrath. Every time you sin, the water of wrath is building like it is behind a dam. But the reason why that wrath is not upon you is because God's kind. So if you are living in calm, it's because God's kind. You don't deserve it. We, we think exactly the opposite. We think life should not be full of problems. It should not be this hard. Life shouldn't be this difficult for me. I should have ease, comfort, a hammock every day. No, the only reason you're able to have ease and comfort is because God's kind. He's kind. And instead of looking at life as something to complain about and get mad about and say, nothing's going my way today. When you have a breath and things are going good or you're driving home and you're listening to your favorite song, do you ever thank God that you have some calm? It's his kindness. It's his kindness. He let Methuselah live the longest because he's so patient. Just a question, do you ever see God like that? Do you ever see God as a God that is waiting for you to turn? Because when he takes his hand away, verse 5 says, listen to verse 5 again. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, that means because you're not willing to turn, you're storing up wrath for yourself. For who? For you. It's storing for you. It's got your name on it. On what day? Well, the day of, of wrath when God takes his hand away when he reveals it. So this calm, so I was talking to somebody afterwards, I said, we live really in a very calm period in history. Like, I know that the elections seem crazy and everybody hates each other and they're shooting guns. And could you, could you imagine living during the Civil War time? Have you ever read about the Civil War? Could you imagine living in Germany or living in Poland during World War II? The average person in Poland in World War II had to leave his home and travel a thousand miles to find another home, and usually they were never welcome wherever they went. The average person in Poland had to go to three different countries. You live in America, you got it great. Have you ever thanked God for that? Truthfully, part of the reason we go to church is to have our eyes look up again and say, God, you're good. You're really good. Remember, this is a devotional message, and it's more about your heart and how you're responding to God and His calm in your life. Third tombstone, or second tombstone, but last tombstone. Go back to Genesis 5. Very interesting passage. A lot of speculation on this passage, a lot of mystery on this passage. There's a, there's a gravestone. It's in the middle of the cemetery. Really weird. If you rub it off, it doesn't, it's not like every other gravestone. Every other gravestone has birth and death. This one 
It simply says in verse 24, this is the insignia on the stone, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. I am just, I'm going to postulate today we need to start living like Enoch. Well, the question is, well, what did he do? Why would I say, let's live like Enoch? What did Enoch do? He didn't build an ark. Enoch didn't build an ark. He did not build a city like Cain. Remember last week, Cain built the city Nod. He didn't start a country or a people group like Abraham did with the Hebrews. All he did, all he did, according to this verse, is he walked with God. That's it? That's all he did? I once heard this story about this girl who came home from Sunday school class and her mom said, what'd you learn today? What'd you learn today, Susie, in class? She said, we learned about Enoch. I guess Enoch and God would go walking at night together. Every once in a while they go walking and Enoch would go back home. They go walking and go back home. And one night Enoch and God got talking so long that they were too far away from Enoch's home for him to make it home. So God said, why don't you just come on over to my house and stay? Is that enough, just having a relationship with God? Is that enough? Did Enoch do enough for us to consider his life as significant? What makes a a life significant? And I'm I'm going to argue that I think Enoch's life's significant, but if we were honest with the way we look at our life, we would say it wasn't, because I think significant comes in four ways, by how much money we have. I think that's the first way. How much money we have, how much things we can buy with that money, and how much vacation time we have because of that money. Now that's a significant life, a person with a big bank account. Or, you know, do we have a job title that people respect? Do we have a, you know, am I a lawyer? Am I a doctor? Am I an RN? You know, in a way... The, the title pastor used to have significance. It doesn't as much anymore. I was talking to somebody. I told him I'm a pastor. And he kind of was like, oh, that's great. And I said, but I do have a master's degree. And he goes, you do? And his eyes got like that. You have a master's degree? As if I'm significant because I took some classes? Are people significant because they took some classes and got a piece of paper from somebody who said, you took some classes with us? Am I significant because I'm leading a ministry or I'm important in a community or I have a lot of friends? Would it be enough? Would it be enough to say I have significance because God and me are close? Is that enough? Scripture seems to suggest that may be the only criteria to make your life significant. Let me show you. Go to the book of John, chapter 14. John chapter 14, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 14 is Jesus talking. He's talking to one of his disciples, and he's talking to him about what's important to him, what's important to Jesus. Listen to what's important to Jesus. And he's talking about what's important to him 
for His disciples. He says in verse 23 of John 14, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him. And, 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 we will come to Him and make our home with Him. That's it, Jesus? That's what you want for my life? Isn't that enough? That God lives in you. Go to Luke. Luke chapter 15. One book to the left. Luke chapter 15. Greatest story Jesus ever told. It's the story of the prodigal son. Very simple story. Two sons. One son took his inheritance, squandered all of it, spent it on all kind of terrible living, ended up eating with pigs, repented, ran home to his dad, and his dad was so happy he's home, he gave him a brand new cloak, gave him a ring, and killed the fatted calf. Had a party like you wouldn't believe. The older brother's ticked. He's mad. And look at what happens in Luke 15, 30 and 31, and you got to you got to let these, especially 31, sink in. Verse 30, the older brother speaking. He's talking to his dad. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. How, he's saying, how dare you, dad? Because he's a good son. He worked with his dad, stayed home with his dad, did the chores, was useful. His life was useful. Listen to what the dad says to him in verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. Isn't that enough? All that is mine is yours. But the key phrase is, Son, okay, fine. He squandered the well. Okay, fine. He didn't work on a, he didn't work on a farm as hard as you do. But Son, you're with me. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? Enoch walked with God and God took him home. Go to Luke 10. Watch this. Luke 10. Jesus is sending his disciples out two by two. Man, they're preaching the kingdom of God. They are casting out demons and they're healing people. And they're coming back and they're excited. I mean, they're geared up. This is Luke 10. We're going to start in verse 17. And it says, the 72 returned. So the people that were sent out returned and they returned. I mean, they're, they're happy. I mean, they're returning with joy. They're probably high-fiving each other, jumping in the air. And they said, Lord... Even the demons are subject to us in your name. The demons are doing what I'm saying. Man, we're useful. Things are getting done. And he said to them, oh, I know, I know. I, and this is, I, I can hear Jesus saying, I know, because I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, because in fact, he's the one that kicked Satan out. He's the one that took all the authority away from Satan. That's what he says in verse 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you, okay? But now, take verse 20 slow. Because we don't take this slow. We love the show. Give me the show. Look at the demons being expelled. Look at all, oh, God's doing stuff. And he says in verse 20, don't rejoice in this. 
Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Okay, yeah, that's great, but that's not what you should be excited about. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Your mine. Isn't that enough? Is it enough to say, I have God and we're close? Psalm 131 says, oh, like a, like a weaned child with his mother. I don't, I don't have thoughts that are too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and I have quieted my soul and I put my hope and trust in God. I want to show you, I think, one of the saddest psalms. Go to Psalm 42. And I, I want to kind of juxtapose Juxtapose what I just said with Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is a psalm that I'm sure many of you are familiar with because it was about 25 years ago this song was very popular. And I can remember, this is why I started studying this psalm, because I can remember singing this song and I didn't, I was at a point in time in my life when I, I had to be very, I was very careful about what I was singing because I didn't want to sing just to sing. I wanted to sing what I really believed. And so sometimes I told Jared, I said, you wouldn't have liked me back. I would have, wouldn't have sang a lot of your songs back in the day because I was contemplating if I really believed that. Because there's a song we'd sing in youth group, you know, and I, I, would, I would see my teen singing it and I'd say, look, we're not going to sing this song anymore because they would sing this. Holiness. Holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. And in that song they say, brokenness. Brokenness is what I long for. Do you really? I want to say, do you? Do you really? Do you really want holiness? Because I realize, I don't know if I do. It's scary. And then this song is the one that I was thinking the same thing in a Sunday morning. And here's how the song goes. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. You alone are my strength, my... Like, is that my heart's desire? On a Tuesday afternoon, on a Friday at 8, is... God, my heart's desire? I had to really ask that. Because if you read the song, take a look at it. Psalm 42. He's comparing the devotion of the writer to a deer that's hunted, and he's finding, finally he finds some water, and he's lapping it up. He's panting. He's exhausted. And that water's what he needs more than anything, because he's being hunted. And the writer's saying, my soul is thirsting for God like that. And I, I, was, I was being truthful. I think, we're, we're, I think devotion to God means we have to be truthful. Not just religious, but truthful. Religious is like, oh, that brings it. I love that psalm. Truthfulness is, do I live that psalm? There's a big difference. And so I was saying, okay, I want to be like this, but what causes that kind of thirst? What is it that causes thirst? And if you read, watch what causes thirst. Verse 3. 
My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. But now, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar because of verse 7. Here's why he's thirsty. Because he's in a storm. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So what he's saying is, God, I'm in the middle of a storm. I need your help. And so as I'm th- I was thinking through this, it's the storm that causes thirst. And so if that is true, why do we wonder why God allows so many storms? Because really, we don't go after him necessarily during the calm. So my question, I was wondering to myself, would God hold back the storm for me if I thirsted in the calm? If I thirsted for him in the calm, would he need to send so many storms my way? Or does he need to send the storm so I thirst for him again? I I was explaining it to Ken like this. One time I said, Ken, there's some people when they come to see you in church that are like, driftwood. I lived on Lake Erie in the wintertime. The, the driftwood would get caught in the ice flows, and like around February, the storms would push them on shore. So when you'd come about February or March, you'd walk. remember walking the shoreline with my dog, throwing rocks, but there'd be so many gnarly pieces of driftwood. There'd be dead fish. There'd be old plastic bottles. But in June, July, and August, if you walk that same beach, There's nothing, because all the driftwood's out floating. People that are like driftwood are people that, when times are tough, they knock on the pastor's door because they need God. But when life's good, you don't talk to him too much. Because it's the storm that brings you close to God. Some people get on cycles. Some will come every three years, some every five Storm, oh, another storm because I'm getting a lot of phone calls, which is okay. I think God intends that because he wants us to long after him. But my question is, I wonder if I could be like Enoch where I could be walking with, with God in the calm so I wouldn't need to storm. I don't know if that's possible because there seems to be a lot in the New Testament about suffering. It's a blessing to suffer. I, You know, as a frail man, I hate it, but Maybe that's the only way I'll pant after him. In your calm, let me just ask you, like this is a devotional question. When things are going good, how often do you really pray? So, to end, as thinking through this, the last really devotional question is this. Go to the next slide. Why then, you know, like this thinking at the very beginning where I have maybe a minute where everything's at peace. Well, it's because everybody's so busy. They're always in a hurry. Why is everybody in such a hurry? And I think it's this. Everybody's trying to seek significance outside of God. Why else is everyone in such a hurry? Why are you so busy? Mainly, I think, I think 
we are busy because we want people to think I'm important. I have to have things. I have to have my schedule filled up. I've got to have money. Can I find... Because when you're with God, here's the natural result of being with God. Because the Spirit of God lives in you, so when I have God in me, the Spirit of God fills me. And there's this whole idea that in Ephesians, he will, he will take more control of my life. How do you know when the Holy Spirit is really filling you? Love. The, you, don't, you don't conjure this, it just happened. You have more love, you have more joy, you have more peace. You have more patience, you have more kindness. Why do we hate each other so much? Because we all are trying to prove our significance. That's really all politics is. We're more important than the other party. So we're going to bash the other party, destroy them, or we're going to win. <laughs> Why? Can you be satisfied with your relationship with God? Is that enough? Is that enough? So we've walked through the cemetery. You look at all the names, everybody dies, but really it's all about Jesus. See Methuselah, man, God is patient with me. He's given me some time right now for the calm, and then I look at Enoch. Maybe I should start walking with God. And maybe he'll take me out of here before things get bad. That'd be kind of nice. Rapture comes tonight, that'd be great. My kids don't like when I say this. Death would be welcome because they get to see Christ. That's morbid. I know, but it's great. It's great. 